everyone, and welcome back to the I Am Not Alone podcast, where we dive deep into the personal, professional, cultural, and systemic changes that will redefine the way we care for one another. Most people picture caregiving as someone taking care of an aging parent or supporting a loved one through a treatment cycle after an unexpected diagnosis. These are common and important, but the caregiving experience covers such a broad spectrum. Some of the toughest chronic care situations are often overlooked. That is why I'm so excited to shine the spotlight on Danny McCauley this week. Danny is a fearless business leader making real waves in the way employers provide the right benefits to support their employees. She's also a mom who cared for her son, John, for over 20 years. Her journey in caring for his special needs highlights a whole different side of caregiving, one that we haven't talked about here before, the type of caregiving that really requires sustainable and reliable support for the long haul. So let's dive right into this conversation where Danny will share what this journey taught her, how it affected her career, and how it changed the way she thinks about her work in empowering employers to care for their employees. So when we think about caregiving, we often think about how we rally support, right? We have this whole campaign that we say, just show up, just show up to people's houses, you know, just say something, do something. But a type of support for caregiving that often gets overlooked are these long-term situations that require these ultra-marathon-like type of care, and that looks different. And so today, we're going to really dig into how we can build sustainable support systems and how that looks when we talk about caregiving for our children, which we haven't really covered yet. So this is so important. And it's we have you know thousands of caregivers um, using Care who are caring for children. And so I couldn't think of anyone better to invite onto this podcast than Danny McCauley, who is so incredibly knowledgeable about this, uh, both professionally and personally. Um, but her passion and insights and her drive to really create solutions for millions of people is just so inspiring. And so, Danny, I am so excited to introduce you to our community. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your story. Thank you so much, Jessica. I'm really pleased to be here and and share Sean's story, my son's story, too. Yeah, Sean, I can't wait to hear all about it. So uh, just to get started, just give us some context, like tell us a little bit about yourself and your caregiving journey for your son, Sean. Sure. So I am Danny McCauley, and I am the mom of two boys, Sean McCauley and Connor McCauley. Sean was born in 2000. So when Sean was 10 months old, he was diagnosed with what was expressed to us as a fatal brain tumor. He was diagnosed with an atypical teratoid rhabdoid at 10 months old. And the doctor said, we have nothing for you, take him home. So obviously our caregiving journey beyond the traditional new parent caregiving needs began truly, it, it had a before and after moment on November 29th of 2000 when Sean was diagnosed and we were told he would need brain surgery. And that began our caregiving journey. Sean uh, went through seven surgeries. He had chemo. He had a stem cell transplant. He had a, a, you know, a whole host 
of complex care needs for about six months. And during that six months time, doctors were still saying to us, we don't want to give you false hope because there is still like a 3% chance that he will live. So the, the way in which we attacked Sean's care initially really came down to that we felt we had no choice and we were exploring the very last inch of the earth to try anything. And after care was really completed, we really sat and waited for a moment or two or three years. And our second son, Connor, was born and we moved to Colorado and we moved from California where we were what I would call a cancer family to when we moved to Colorado, we became Mm. a special needs family because Sean was now a couple of years out Mm. of treatment. We had a newborn in the house and we had a special needs son. And we began to identify ourselves in a different class of of need because our son during his treatment, it was determined he had a stroke during his first brain surgery. And that stroke, unbeknownst to us, Mm. caused significant uh, cognitive and physical uh, challenges. Sean was nonverbal. He was fed through a G-tube. He was non-ambulatory. He required 24-7 care. Now, the good news is my husband was a firefighter, and you could not pick a better dad uh, in a situation like this because Mm. my husband became Sean's primary caregiver. And we made the decision that John would stay home and care for Sean, and I would continue to work, and we would raise our family and be a special needs family. And every year or so, we would go back to the doctors, we would have updated scans, and in truth, we called Sean a miracle. He wasn't supposed to live six months, and as the years went on, we really celebrated the miracle that he was. And that we felt we were really what we used to joke amongst friends and families is that we had a lease extension because Sean was not ours to own. He was ours to experience and we would only get him for as long as we would get him. And so when at the age Mm. of 20 and a half about his cancer returned out of the blue in the middle of the pandemic, and it was determined that there was nothing more that we could do for him. And so we then became a palliative care family in the transition of Sean's life to him passing away. And then when Sean passed away, we became a grieving caregiving family. And I think about every step of the way Mm -hmm. from new diagnosis all the way through where we are today, which is in, you know, a transition of grief and in processing and, you know, deciding why this happened and I have come to realize nothing has happened to me in my life that wasn't supposed to. And every single moment of Sean's experience has shaped what I believe is my understanding of that I'm a lucky one. While Sean passed away, we were the ones that had the means, had the opportunity and access to second opinions and navigators and doctors. And I was struck by how few people really have that. And so within a year after Sean was diagnosed, we started a nonprofit called Sean's Hope. Because when a doctor said to me, we don't want to give you false hope, as I think about it, there's no such thing as false hope. Because hope got us out of bed every morning to prepare to face the massive challenge of the day, especially in an environment where they said, your son's not going to live. Hope was the only thing we had. And so we called the foundation Sean's Hope, and it was really about helping families in their fight 
against pediatric cancer. I have been thinking about this for 20 plus years because it applied so specifically in my own life. Mm. And to be in a position professionally now to drive meaningful innovation for Aon customers and to use my own personal experience when we talk to employers, I am just one experience. We all, so many of us have these complex care stories or even care stories in light of COVID or care stories relative to caring for aging parents. Every one of us has these experiences in our lives. And I've always felt that we need a solution that is ready when it happens, ready to enable support when it happens. And frankly, for long-term needs, that support can't be completely community and friends and family based. Right. Totally. I am speechless right now. I My heart is beating deeply. <laughs> I've never even described it that way before, but to hear your, share your story and Sean's story and John's story and Connor's story and just your whole family's journey, you know, there's so much that is unsaid, but we feel all that you've gone through. And now I completely understand just, you know, it's beyond passion. It's with conviction. Um, you lead with conviction of what is needed and why. And, uh, you know, I love that, you know, as hard as it is and it must have been, you call Sean a miracle and a gift. And I think it's through his gift that you are now a gift to all of us and to this space and, you know, to this Thank whole movement so moving forward. And that is like what I feel. And there's, and we're just beginning, but I just like, I, it is with this depth, there's so much to dig into. Um, you know, it's interesting because to hear your journey, it is, it is, uh, we always talk about rallying support in a very acute situations, right? And we, and we say ca- cancer, you have this, but there's a clear plan. Let's rally around it. Let's fight it. And that care and that support is different than long-term, like special needs or a disability or a chronic condition. And you've experienced both. And I would love to hear how it felt like, one, to go through those different types of care and situations. So we can start there, but then I would love it to hear your thoughts now, knowing what you feel and with this conviction of what people need how you would describe the type of support that's needed in both those situations. Sure. So I think the first thing I would say is that when Sean's medical journey began 20 years ago, the first thing is friends, families, strangers showed up for us in the most prolific way. So we had just moved to a new neighborhood. We knew nobody on our block and they coordinated meals on our porch, unbeknownst to us, almost immediately. The neighborhood created a communication system where they put flags out on their flagpoles for Sean when he was home. And when he wasn't home, they lowered them and the community knew to help us in a different way. So the first thing I will say is, and it really started with a woman across the street. Her name was Mm. Candy. She was a nurse and she, you know, was called to being there for people in a really meaningful way. And she mm. did came across the street and introduced us herself to us on the day Sean was originally brought home from the hospital, which was six weeks after he was initially uh, admitted. And actually, it was his first birthday. 
And when we came home on his first birthday, the doorbell rang and she showed up and she said, you don't know us, but our neighborhood is aware of what's gone on and we'd like you to come outside. And they had created a parade for Sean. And this parade, every single one of the families had street signs and they were exactly, as you said, rallying for us. It was so Mm. clear that these strangers were immediately vested in us. And that's just the strangers showing up, let alone my parents, my family, my husband's family, my friends. You know, we lived in Southern California at the time. We have a really big network of friends and family and everybody wanted to get involved and help. So the first thing Mm -hmm. I experienced was I needed to find a way to communicate with people that didn't drain me emotionally. So the first thing I did, and this is 20 years ago before Caring Bridge and solutions like that existed, but I kind of cobbled together a website that I would on a daily basis journal or give people updates so they would know, are we in the hospital? Uh, Have we started chemo? How's the transplant going? All of those things. But Really what that did was open up a bigger community for me. It allowed Mm. me in the posting of that to meet other families of kiddos that were diagnosed with an atypical teratoid rhabdoid. So it allowed me to see the concept of community. And it was the early days Mm -hmm. of online community groups. So it was, it was rough. Let's just say, Jessica, it was hard to communicate. And what I noted is that there was this website for the kinds of kids that Sean's diagnosis had. And it was really a sequential list. And whoever was at the top of the list was alive the longest. And over the years, Sean moved up and moved up and moved up. And he was the top name on that list. And honestly, I looked at that like as a badge. That was his survivor Mm. badge. So through being a part of these different connected communities, I became peer-to-peer parent trained so that I could be resource for parents when they were diagnosed. And the different hospitals and, and communities we've been a part of over the years, somebody would be newly diagnosed and a doctor wouldn't have anywhere to to turn to to provide support for that family. And they would call me and they say, would you talk to this person? And I would. But the truth is that relies on the human connection. And frankly, we don't all have those. Yes. And what was clear to me then is how important it was for me to get educated about my son's disease. I was reading papers by doctors in French and I don't speak French. I was using translators and trying to figure out how do I make sure I know exactly what my options are? Because Sean's diagnosis was such, they said, we don't have treatment for you. So I spoke to St. Jude's. I spoke to Massachusetts General in Boston. I spoke to a doctor in France. I spoke to doctors all over the world to try and figure out what can we try? Because I could live with the notion that Sean would die. I couldn't live with the notion that we wouldn't try. So getting access to the trying parts, to the second opinions, to, you know, medical centers of excellence for advice and throughout Sean's journey. So like I said, we were a cancer journey a a bit initially, but when Sean was about 10, because he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy through his journey and a common condition of cerebral palsy is hip dysplasia. And Sean was getting to a point where his hip was completely, he had no hip socket. His 
leg was completely degenerated. Now he wasn't walking, but doctors were saying to us, he should have this hip surgery. He'll be in a body cast for two months and we can't guarantee you'll walk, but we should do this. And right then at that moment, and, and their comment to me was, you're the mom, you tell us. And I didn't feel nearly equipped enough Mm. to answer that question. And I'm his caregiver. I'm his number one advocate. And I was stuck. So I went and got second opinions, but I had to go find those. And it once again reminded me that there was not a single place that could protect every aspect of my journey. Yeah, Durable medical equipment over the years, Sean was G-tube fed. He had a stoma. He had really complex medical needs. And frankly, the durable medical equipment companies turned over a lot. One would go into business, one would go out of business, one would be bought, one would be sold. They were in my network of insurance or they weren't. And it was utterly impossible to curate what I needed at the right time with any mindset of being cost-containing. So the only thing I could do was say, can I get it? And they would say yes. And I wouldn't be able to say how much. I could only say, whatever it is, we'll figure it out. And I was lucky because I had the means to do that, but most don't. And the knowledge, just to even know where to search and who to search and what to ask. I mean, it's very daunting. You know, so what I hear is that, well, first of all, that that parade is just such a visible, tangible, you know, image of, and it was reality for you, of rallying, right? And that was amazing. So shout out to Candy. I mean, wow, you are an inspiration to us all. And it just shows how one person can make a huge difference because it probably just ignited you just say, oh, wow, I can receive help. People do care. And then it opens you up to receive more or share more. But then there's like this progression, right? And so this is exactly it. There's like this emotional, here's meals, we're showing up for you, here are signs. And that gets overlooked a lot. That is so critically important. Doesn't last forever. But then it progresses to, wait, hold on. Yeah, it doesn't last forever. You're like, hold on. I need to know options. I need info. Like, I actually need to provide the care because these doctors are looking to me, mom, as what do you want to do? What should we do? They sent Sean home with a pick line, Jessica, that they said, okay, you guys have to take care of this pick line. And by the way, it's a source of real infection and risk and, you know, chemo is going to make it really bad. And candidly, I did not feel equipped to be his nurse caregiver and another nurse in the hospital. We just connected. She was an angel sent from somewhere and she effectively went on the journey with us. But once again, I had to have met that right person at that right time. And as lucky as I was, I couldn't help but feel so often that I was just lucky. Right. But you also probably advocated like we had it. We just, um, our previous episode was all about advocacy And whether you know it or not, you know, and I know you because you're such a humble person that you probably felt like very lucky that this person helped you, but you probably advocated in that moment to say, I need help. You need to help me. Can you help me? Um, And so that's amazing. So then when we think about just all the things that people, so even if you showed up at the parade, you, people move on with their life and here you are on this long-term journey. So how do you describe that? So when we talk about sustainable support, because we really want to dig into what really often gets overlooked because beyond the initial news and the rallying in these long-term journeys, you know, people who really need that ongoing help is, you know, are, are, you know, is in a situation like yours. So, but what the most common question is, what do you need help with? Like, what did you need help with? So it seems like resources, 
what other aspects of sort port did you need to make it more sustainable? Well, so the first thing I would say is that family, friends, and community were critical to that acute phase. However, after about six months, Mm -hmm. after Sean's primary chemo and radiation and all those initial things were done, it's about six months after he was diagnosed, and we were all looking at each other saying, now what? What we needed was people to help us with the long-term care needs. And the truth is, because Sean was so complex medically, my family could not provide that. My parents weren't comfortable, understandably, with caring for a PICC line, caring for a G-tube, caring for. And so it took us about three years before John and I, after Sean was diagnosed, were able to go away for a weekend. Wow. And candidly, you asked me the question, what did it feel like? If I am really honest, we felt like we got left on the side of the road and life kept going. So, and it does but it was incredibly painful because our life was stopped and completely and forever changed. And those who loved us stopped with us, but they kept going as they should. And as you learn, but we felt abandoned. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's like critical. So it took us getting our own crew and we had to go buy our own crew. We had to go find the resources and the, the success factor came down to, were we able to find the right person at the right time for the right need? And we, again, were lucky in that we had a special needs caregiver that was with us for the in, for, for when Sean was about three and she was there with us when he died. And having mm-hmm. that consistent support with somebody who is medically capable and trained and able, you know, she became a part of our family. She's like, a sister or a daughter to me. And by the way, now that Sean's passed, I grieve the loss of our caregiver. Oh, oh, that's hard. Yeah. I mean, you touch upon something so important there um, and you articulate it so well where there is, you feel like life goes on for everyone else. You're stopped, but you said as it should. Like, so it's this interesting dynamic where you feel so hurt by this and so left out you feel like it's unfair and just, it's so hard, but then you're like, but you don't require everyone else to stop. You're like, no, you should keep moving on. But I always wonder for even, cause we're, you know, what do you, what could people have done knowing that they should continue to live their life, but where you really didn't feel completely left on the side of the road? Do you think that's even possible? Or is that just part of the, the feeling that we'll have because it's, Because it is our every day. Yeah. So first off, I think it's inevitable. For me, the key piece that I had to add was mental health care. I had to go and see a counselor and process the grief independently so I could be emotionally prepared to distinguish between my hurt feelings and the reality that life goes on. And the truth is, I'm not sure that my family could have done anything to really help me with that transition. So as a caregiver, I am a huge advocate for mental health support. I have been in grief counseling since Sean passed away on July 11th of 2020 and, you know, will continue Mm -hmm. to invest in how it feels to be in this situation. The, the thing that I would say you could have, what would have helped more is at that six month mark for that 
emerging, you know, you have your, what I call people you can ugly cry with, like your core crew. Mm -hmm. If my core crew could have come together and said, we know there's a transition and it's changing. What we would like to do is support you in the long term, which might look different. And here's some ideas. What do you think? Because my biggest emotional challenge was feeling guilty for being a burden on anybody. And so because I felt guilty and because they had been so supportive for six months, of course I felt guilty. And of course they had done their part. So I felt the need to give them permission not to. And so because of my own emotional conflicting, internal conflicting uh, story, I was caught between being wanting to, to, for them to offer help without me having to ask for it because I felt too guilty to ask for it. And the truth is our families who love us likely don't know how to bring it up. Just like when Sean died, we have to teach ourselves how to live in a grief involved life with our families, which includes saying, we want to talk about Sean. We want his life to be meaningful and the fact that he died doesn't change the meaning of his life. Yeah. I mean, there's there's so much wisdom in that because, you know, and, and, you know, the essence of everything we do is like, I am not alone care, right? And the reason why I want to double, double click on this whole aspect of it is because when we feel isolated, alone, on the side of the road, by our friends and family, by the systems, and, everything, and we have all right to feel that. But when we just sit in it, that's when we actually don't even create our own crew or create a support system. It is like our number one roadblock because it feels so awful. And you feel like you have no, it's so overwhelming. You feel like you have no choice and that can spiral and multiply, which becomes the reason why you don't get the support you need. And so I love what you said where one, it's, it's, inevitable. And a lot of times we don't, we think that it shouldn't be like this. Why is it like this? And we get angry. And then we have family dynamic issues because we, and we will still get frustrated, but we will get angry to the point where we won't talk to people anymore. And then we break it off because we're like, why is this even happening? This shouldn't happen. Instead of saying, this is inevitable. So what do I do? I need to face it. I'm going to get mental health help. Love that. Because I need to work through these inevitable dynamics and emotions um, and then I love it. You're like, well, we have to build our own crew and there's like, you know, there's guilt and there's burden and this and all these other organic crews. So let me build my own crew and then communicate it. I mean, I think those are very clear takeaways that you lived out, which is rare. It is rare to be that self-aware and to actually put it into action in that ways. So and I, you know, hearing you, I'm like, gosh, that's like, I'm learning from it. Like, or I hope we all learn from those aspects because that's actually what ignites support. There were times where we felt we were on trial or we were being scrutinized for our the way in which we were caring for Sean. And that was the most emotionally devastating thing. And the reason why I bring it up is that when you have a complex care need, there are instances where it's very clear what you should do, but there are so many more instances where it is not clear and as the parent or as the primary decision maker on that care, it's a very lonely and scary place to be to feel that I could be getting this decision wrong. Right. That's a lot of weight. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. If you're willing to share, because it is the first time where we are talking about being a caregiver for your child. I don't, I can't even begin to start to like express how, what that would be like. So just, what 
what are how like what did that feel like like in the yeah, like what what comes to mind i'm sure a flood of emotions a flood of everything comes to mind so i know it's a difficult question so i apologize for that take That's the time okay. you need but just as a mom i have 3 kids i never have to be a caregiver in the way that you were for them what does that even begin to feel like so the first thing i would say is it was incredibly pressure filled so mm-hmm. When they said to us, take him home, we have nothing for you. I was this first time mom and I was like a, you know, a bulldog mom saying, no, you know, you will find a way, you know, and I, I was the one who said, no, we will keep going. And we found care and guess what? It worked and he was living. And the truth is in his survival, it held so much responsibility for me because my husband would say, I would have listened to the doctor and said, take him home and give him respite and let him mm-hmm. pass. And because I was so sure, like we had to fight, but it put this incredible burden of his every breath and more importantly, his joy. So mm. Sean's complexities, he had a stroke. He was nonverbal. He was nonambulatory. Um, I could I could go on and on about how sad it sounds, but the reality is, in person, if you knew Sean, he played mm. the piano. Wow. He never spoke a word in his life, but if I put on Mozart and he was at one of his keyboards, which we had a keyboard in every single room in our house, he would start playing along. And he oh, would play along gosh. backwards and upside down, lying on the floor. So it was clear to me, being Sean's mom, that while on paper, it was very two-dimensional. Like Sean was either happy or he was not. He wasn't able to communicate other than through at the end of like some sign language. And we had a talker that he used in limited capacity, but it would be really easy to discount his intellect just based on the presentation of him. But the minute he started playing the piano and playing these complex things, and I was musical as a kid. And so Sean and I had all this time of him playing the piano and me singing and us being together musically, I used to feel like that was his language as opposed to spoken word is our language. Right. But the notion of a three-dimensional relationship, as hard as this is to talk about, you know, in most relationships, you're giving, they're giving back. And there is something that happens beyond that what each person gives, which is this other entity, which is bigger than the both of you. With Sean, that other entity wasn't a relationship the way you or I would think of a relationship. It stayed somewhat Mm two-dimensional in that because he was, you know, he was either happy, fed, clean, cared for, having music therapy, having swim therapy, having occupational therapy, having physical therapy, or he was not. And it became very black and white, our lives. like So every decision, every holiday was colored by this idea of how will we accomplish this for Sean? So Sean became number one, priority mm. number one. And every single other thing in our lives took a back seat. Wow. And if you were to say to me, how does that feel? I feel like I got gypped. I'm grateful mm. that Sean doesn't, didn't know his cognitive deficit, but I did. Right. And for, for me to know, and especially as I saw Sean develop, like 
really beautiful musical talent. As I saw that develop, I couldn't help but be angry and feel like we had been robbed mm. of what could have been. Right. And the world, I think, always, like even how people respond or things, they they like remind you of that. And you're like, no, but that's not it. It's like yeah. this constant tension. As you even talk, there's this beauty and this uniqueness. And you saw that and you brought that out. And that's celebrated. And there's there's that. But then at the same time, you're like, oh, then what could have been? And then it, and then you feel gypped. And there's just this constant tension that I think often people don't talk about because sometimes you just hear the glorious, oh, but then we were resilient. And then everyone's like, wow, you're amazing. And you are amazing. But then- But that's a burden for somebody to, it's also a burden yeah. for somebody to carry when people say you're amazing. It, it becomes pressure because you have to then be amazing. And the truth is Interesting. you don't, but there is a pressure for special needs families, especially people will say to special needs family, we joke in our community and we're like, people say, oh, God only gives you what you can handle, or you guys are so special, you, you know, the, they're so lucky. Right. And all those things are true. But we as a special needs community would say, yeah, and I would give it all back. I didn't choose this, mm, right. you know, so, so there's this humor that there's this dark humor that is important in long-term care journeys, especially, which is that, you know, you wouldn't have chosen it. What often gets unsaid, but what is our awkward moments is how, what would be encouraging to hear? Like, yeah. is there anything? Cause I, you know, even I've learned that when, uh, when I even say, Oh, here's my friend and she has a special needs child. Sometimes people say, Oh, I'm like, what? There's, don't pity her, you know? Yeah. But then there's this other aspect of being real. So do you, I mean, it's, a, it's a, again, a difficult question, but yeah. what would be, what's a, an appropriate or, and I'm sure it's personal for everybody, but like, what would be, what do you want to hear when people want to show support? Yeah. So two things at the time when Sean, throughout Sean's journey, the one thing I noticed is people didn't ask about Sean because they mm. were afraid to. Because if you have a complex scenario and I say to you, how are you, Jessica, in casual you know, conversation, and you say, actually, today's a horrible day. Sean's G-tube came out. We had to go to the emergency room. School sent him home and we didn't have urgent care. All those, that's the reality of it. That's the reality. You know, the reality is much more complicated. So I think that's you know, so 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 saying nothing at all is worse. Just but but asking and actually maybe really wanting to listen then would be yeah. a good thing. And I would say to any caregiver, and is that notion yeah. of who's the person you can ugly cry with, and then when stuff goes bad, break the seal fast. <laughs> so mm. through grief, when Sean was passing, I made sure to connect with my core community that I felt. I could ugly cry with, which was less than five people. It was a small group of people, but I called them and cried with them because I knew they couldn't fully support me because they were afraid and they were afraid mm -hmm. to upset me and I needed to break the... So one of the things that could help is yeah. some kind of footsteps journey that tells people, this is the time you should think about this. So it's checklists, if you will. So the whole, you know, educational challenges, the whole physical therapy challenge, each one of those has their own checklist, et cetera, but how they all merge together using smart technology. It mm -hmm. didn't exist when we, when I start, when I was going through this journey, 
But Jessica, you've created it. Yeah, yeah. We can you, we can leverage which technology. Is serving yeah. something to me. If I were di- if I had somebody in the family diagnosed with cancer, there are specific cancer journey items that you can raise to the provider or to the caregiver that will help. And frankly, right. when you're in the middle of the acute challenge, you don't even know what would help. So the first thing that anybody could do is just help them map out what is needed. And that really yeah. comes with tactical support that doesn't have that emotional baggage attached to it. Yep, so I see totally. the value of Ionicare really living as a tool, no differently than the way people are using steps today yeah. and how you connect and how you create that community. It's a perfect transition to like how you're bringing all of this. Uh, again, your personal and your professional and you, I mean- for everyone who's listening, Danny is, I don't know, just Rockstar is overused, but just a force, <laughs> force in the business world, um, in the way that you lead and the way that you have a vision and the way that you just make things happen. So kind of, if you can, if we could transition to, you know, what are you doing today? And then where do you see the responsibilities of employers in this, having lived it and you were working and you were busy and all of that. So what do you do today and where where should we be what should we be doing yeah so i think there's one aspect of the pandemic that has a what i will call a silver lining to it is that employers were forced to rethink the definition of a caregiver we all mm-hmm. became caregiver any parent became a caregiver because you couldn't do your job and help your kids with school and guess what a lot of women exited the workforce to be primary school teachers when the pandemic shut down. And so the first thing I would say is that the pandemic elevated a few key areas of need, one of which was caregivers. So in Aon's annual well-being surveys and in our client surveys, we are constantly asking about what needs they're aware of. And I can tell Mm -hmm. you five years ago, the employer interest in caregiver was minimal. It was less than 5% of employers were thinking about caregiver solutions as something they needed. And over the last five years, and then especially 2020 and 2021, it's the most talked about requested benefit that our clients are saying, tell me more about caregiver solutions. It's emerging no different than student loan solutions were five years ago. Five years ago, student loans were getting that everybody wanted to know about them. Caregiver is right in center of that discussion now. And so I was looking for a solution that would not just support the needs for elder care, which are very meaningful. And I was looking for a solution that included navigator assistance. So professionally certified navigator assistance when you're thinking about long-term care facilities and knowing where's the right place to go, et cetera. That was really important. But I also wanted somebody that could think about in the context of my own journey and all the families out there who have kids that have been diagnosed with autism. And that diagnosis in itself, when you think about the numbers of kids that are on individual education programs in schools with autism or any number of things, including the complex situation of my son with cerebral palsy, I didn't see solutions that were using technology to drive ease and uh, support for longer care journeys, and more importantly, supports that were specific to children, which need to include things like 
child life and play therapy. In adults, yeah. you're thinking about different needs. I remember our first conversation, Danny, where we were just so passionate about this broader definition of caregiving that, by the way, is not new, but to your point, the pandemic has kind of brought it to life. So the world now knows what we've always known, um, that it's broader definition than just elder care or just child care. And there's a lot in between. I'm very excited about the progression of the workplace benefits being mainly, it used to be rallying, almost just like, oh, you have something, take time off but come back, you know, yeah. is kind of what it's been sent around or you need a care. Let me f- help you find that. And then that's it. Where like exactly what we're talking about all today about the sustainability of this long-term care, that's where there's progression, there's evolution. Paid time off yeah. will never solve the long-term care need. There's exactly. not enough paid time off. There just isn't. Exactly. So having something, and and don't get me wrong, flexibility, time off programs, those are all transitioning. It's almost like base. But those are the baseline. Yeah, that's like the That's the baseline. But you cannot solve long term, especially, you know, it is impractical for an employer to maintain somebody on their payroll if they're not working for too long. You must have ways in which you can be resilient and work with the challenge. And that's where a solution like Ionic Care really uniquely fits, and which is us looking at how can you make life easier so they do have more balance in their brain to be able to focus on work and family. Because they don't... It used to be that you kept those things separate, myself included. My early part of my career, I did not talk about Sean's journey because it made me uncomfortable. And I worried that people would assume that I wasn't up for promotion because I was too busy. And so I didn't Mm -hmm. talk about it a lot. But the older I got and the more I did talk about it, the more I realized it opened up a common experience in my work relationships that became way more valuable than protecting my fears. Yeah, right. And now that you are a significant leader in your organization, you know, one, you know, one of the major influences that we've seen in changing culture, both in the workplace and outside, are leaders being more open and vulnerable about their own situations. Um, Clearly, I saw that as uh, the maternity space really grew. It was as soon as these key leaders were saying, oh, yeah, it's a struggle for me, too, and we need support. Um, And then everyone and then it became more accepted. So it's breaking the stigma. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It breaks down the stigma. Um, And so but it takes it, you know, takes leaders to really do that. Um, I, you know, as we wrap up here and, um, you know, I really do wish we had like hours and hours and hours, but we'll grab wine together and hang out and talk. (laughs) Um, but as we wrap up, you know, you know, we always think about all this stuff that we do today is trying to build a world that we wish we could see and how people see care, how people are treated as they do the care and also receive the care. So I'm just curious, like off the cuff, just what's on your heart. And it could be a small or big, just but, you know, for all the work that you're doing and how you're dedicating your whole life and your whole self to moving caregiving forward. What do you want to see the world doing or how to respond to caregivers? Yeah, I think the way I th- the way the world is transforming its discussion about mental health and what we see today embracing and finding way listen, mental health is a huge issue. It is a massive issue with children, but more importantly it's a massive issue for all of humanity right now. And I think 
if we could contemplate the caregiver the way we contemplate mental health today, which says it's a life and death, you've got to take care of them because the caregiver will have a mental health issue if they are not cared for themselves. So I feel like this notion of when one person in a family is sick, the whole family is sick and solutions that support the whole family's wellness and giving voice and destigmatizing what that help needs to look like and include. We need to destigmatize the fact that if you have a special needs child, counseling is a really good idea. Mm-hmm. You know, and That's and right. we shouldn't be making anybody feel lesser for that. We should, in fact, be embracing them and saying how emotionally intelligent you are. And so, two things: one of which is we think about caregivers the same way you think about the need for mental health, and the second is if we can create a world where, when somebody needs it, right at that moment, your child breaks a leg in a soccer injury, they immediately know where to go to get help. Right. And that help comes, meets them where they're at. So if they're on their smartphone and that's how they choose to interact, great. If they want to call, great. If they want to text, great. If they want to go see somebody in person, great. Omnichannel at its true essence, really with a line item to claim support because that's the moment you need it most. Yes. Claim support. I love that. Well, that is a beautiful world to work towards. And I can attest to you moving it forward in that direction. And so, Danny, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing your story, for being so vulnerable, and to articulate things that are so hard for so many of us to articulate. Even that in itself makes such a difference. Well, I'm really proud of what you guys are doing. I feel I'm vested in your success. So one thing Danny brought up in that conversation, which really struck me, was that feeling of isolation. She said she felt like she had been left on the side of the road while everyone else's life around her continued on. I know that is such a common feeling, but the reality is no matter how involved or eager, our friends and family can't provide all the support we'll need. We need resources and systems of support that are sustainable, evolving as our care needs change. And I love the way Danny explained the moments she came to realize this. One of the most important puzzle pieces to sustainable support is our workplace. Danny's caregiving experience had such an impact on every aspect of her life. And still, she felt like she couldn't or shouldn't share her struggles at work. You know, since then, our workplaces have become much more flexible, understanding, and genuine in the desire to help employees bring their whole selves to work. And Danny is on the forefront to leading this change with her work at Aon. She brought so much insight and heart to this conversation. I'm so grateful to her for helping push forward our mission. Now, I know there are so many of you out there who can relate to Danny's story. We see you, we hear you, and we are advocating for the changes you deserve. Thank you for being here with us as we navigate this journey together. <music>